There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on March the 29th, 2010. I always advise the newcomers to go into cuttingthroughthematrix.com website, bookmark all the other sites you'll see on that front page for future use because sometimes the com site gets bombarded with people downloading and it kind of hesitates on you when you're downloading. This way you've always got the other sites to pull from. And if the comm site goes down, which it does once in a while, you can always get the latest shows from these other sites. And remember, too, there's a whole bunch to choose from, including the European site that's Alan Watt sent in, sentinel.eu, where you can get the addition of transcripts of a lot of the talks I've given, as well as the audios. They all have the audios, but only the EU has the, the transcripts. of, um, and, you, and also, too, you can choose from the various languages of Europe. And remember, too, I have books for sale and discs for sale on my website. That's what makes me just tick over, sometimes tick over, sometimes it's a sort of grinding sound. But it's up to you to keep me going by purchasing the books I have for sale. Look into the website, cuttingthroughmatrix.com, and see what's available. And remember, too, from the U.S. to Canada, you can always purchase via personal check or an international postal money order from your post office. MoneyGram, cash, some people just send cash. And you can also donate, or you can use the donate button to purchase. Just send a separate email along with the, the donation as well. And I'll get them out to you. And lots of people get discs burned to them and passed to them. And they don't use the, the internet at all. Other people burn them for them of the talks I give, so you can get in touch with me at Alan Watt, Site 41, Box 4, Estair, which is E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada, and the postal code is P for Peter, the number 3, E for Elizabeth, the number 4, N for Nora, and the number 1, P3E4N1. Now, there's so much of a bombardment of news uh, much of it is trivia. Uh, some of it's kind of vaguely interesting. And sometimes you'll see patterns in the media when certain, even trivia is released across the whole planet, the same kind of trivia, little personal stories of things going wrong with people dealing with bureaucracies, that type of stuff. And it's almost like a, an imagine that type uh, article. You get lots of these getting bombarded out right now across the world from Britain, the U.S., Canada. Well, who would imagine? Who would imagine that? You can't help a, a child out of a tree kind of idea uh, without getting charged with a, a trespassing offence. Better let the child fall, you know, because you're not qualified, number one, to, to deal with that. The same idea as, as FEMA uh, with the New Orleans idea. When people tried to help their neighbours from drowning, they were forbidden to do so by FEMA because you weren't trained to do it. That's the kind of world we're all being trained into, to simply obey. 
and to accept laws and rules uh, which are meant to alter our behavior and our natural responses. Because, you see, people naturally help each other in times of trouble. That's how we get through real disasters. Not by government intervention, but by people helping people. That's how it's always been, but not anymore, apparently, because we're under this kind of governance. It takes experts to manage everything, and we're being trained every day via the media and movies and all the entertainment industry that experts deal with all the big problems, and your job is to allow them to do so and stand back and get out of the way or else. This is all Pavlovian techniques we're being given, and the media, of course, is helping them along. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix talking about how the media presents stories to us and how there are patterns in the media. This has also been verified, of course, by various studies and universities and all the rest of it with data collection and they see these patterns and the media is an essential arm of government of gov- or they call it governance now. Everything's changed to governance, ruled by experts. That's what it really means. And the media is an essential part because we get most of what we think of as a reality and what we should be concerned about from the media. That's what we think its job is. That's what we think it is. And yet, I think last year I read a, an article from a team who worked, uh, they were hired by Fox News, a bunch of journalists to do documentaries. They did one and uh, they didn't allow it to be published. So the, these journalists took Fox to court. I think it was Fox. And uh, the judge ruled in favor of Fox and said that uh, uh, the media doesn't have to tell the truth to the public. There's nothing written anywhere that says media is there to tell you the truth. And that's verified, too, by people like uh, Zygmunt Brzezinski, who talks about the media um, becoming almost an appendage to everyone's brain, where we expect it to do a reasoning for us. And we do. Most folk are trained that it's some kind of altruistic thing. At one time, you see, uh, when people lived in a world of uh, magic and uh, they didn't know the sciences, sciences were always kept uh, in a, by a sacred few uh, because knowledge is power. But everything was put down to an act of God or whatever. Storms, everything was put down to this, this kind of thing, a bad harvest, whatever. And... They didn't have the media at the time to tell them what to do. At that time, priests would tell them uh, what, what their answer was. for, And that was good enough for them. What else could you do? I mean, this is the high, the high guy here. There's no higher guy than that except God himself. So it must be true. Whatever you were told, it must be true. You've sinned or the, the people sinned or whatever. And, and, of course, that was used for a long time. And as we became so-called enlightened, we think we're enlightened, unfortunately. We think that. Uh, the media took over, and the media came out, and it still is, owned by private corporations. They make their money off advertising, massive, uh, massive advertising, incredible amounts of money they rake in uh, for ads on television. And they're under no obligation to tell you the truth, and they will never print something that conflicts with their advertisers. 
big companies, big corporations, international corporations, they're never going to print something to their own disadvantage. And there have been cases in the past where some have tried that and been put under and put out of business. Because it only takes one corporation to notify the rest and say, you can't trust these guys. Uh, Look what they've done to us. They're giving us bad press and everyone pulls their ads and down you go, you're sunk. So you can never have truly a free press on any national level. That's all. And have it tell you the truth. But as again, getting back to what is, what is, is most folk do believe that the media is there to tell you what's important that you should know. Meanwhile, half the, half the, the, the rags they put out there today are devoted to the trash in Hollywood, the, the, you know, the bimbos and divorces. And I think they make most of that stuff up, to be honest with you. It's just like soap opera is ongoing. And the public have been trained to be addicted to it. And they are addicted to it. Because they're, they're, they're really psychologically fascinated by the rich and famous. Never understanding that anyone can be made rich and famous if the right people get behind them. That's how the world really works. But, as I say, we're getting bombarded with trivia. And in amongst the trivia, there's important stuff. But even then, you have to go beyond the media in this day and age to find out what's really, really going on. And I try and put links up to the big uh, organizations, the parallel government, the real government, run by CEOs and charitable organizations as fronts uh, that have international meetings and uh, your governments all send delegates off to be involved with them and to take their so-called suggestions and their mandates to, to heart and, and write it into law, which they do. It's been like that for an awful long time. And the media, you're lucky if the media will even mention a one-liner as to the meeting even taking place, but they'll never explain actually what it's all about. It's not their job to tell you that because it's against uh, their boss's interest to have you realize uh, that uh, you've been conned for years by the same media who should have been telling you this stuff all along. So they're not going to start now. But once in a blue moon, you'll, you'll see a form of almost predictive programming. You're, you wonder at times if um, the exposés on television are simply predictive programming, which most of it is, of course. Uh, the idea of predictive programming is an old idea, Tavistock used it uh, and worked on this idea for the BBC many, many, many moons ago, where they found that they could implant an idea into someone's head, either through fiction or novels, which they used to read on even the radio, or plays or movies, or even present it in a a sort of uh, kind of laughing form as a kind of documentary, semi-comical, if you... Uh, would get, if it would prepare your mind for the real thing coming down the road because you don't take a lot of stuff seriously but you're implanted with the idea of probability and inevitability that's the real key is inevitability so when it, it is introduced you think well I guess that's normal it's kind of vaguely familiar the idea and you don't really rationalize and reason your way through it you think well I guess it must be so you can't remember where you got all that from but it must be so now, Wendy Mesley has a show on Canadian television. She, tended to, she did one on the harp, in fact, uh, one of the first ones on harp technology with Nick Bigage as the guest. But she also did one 
on um, a national ID card and an international ID card back in the 90s, but 98, I think it was, in Canada. And it started off with one of our employees or workers uh, going in to facilities we'd never even heard of and, and being ID'd by special security police for uh, an, a, fo- a photograph for the ID card, uh, biometric scan, fingerprints, all that stuff back in the 90s. And uh, I did tape it at the time. I've, I've, I've unfortunately taped over the last part of it, but I've got most of it. But towards the end, she uh, she talked to one the big CEO of the manufacturer of the, the ID card. Now, it's the same ID company or card company that's making them for the whole of the world, it seems, and based in Canada here. And she talked to the CEO, and she says, well, it's, it's, people might be kind of wary of this and uh, all this information being available by governments, maybe even hackers, uh, what, what makes you think the public will go for this? And he turns around and he says, um, the public will be given no option. See, that's how the world really works. The guy wasn't giving his personal opinion. This man had been at international meetings, national meetings, and it was in the works long ago and decided long ago. The only way they have to do things now is to gradually introduce the ideas more and more and more until we just cave in, basically, and say, well, it had to happen. But did it? Did it really have to happen? When the same governments admit that nothing can be made secure, as far as information goes, what's so important about it? Well, the owners, down through the ages, always make sure their cattle are branded, you see. And if you're the owners of cattle, you even find that in the Old Testament, they'd examine their, their, their beasts, you see, to, and now, of course, they weigh them and all the rest of it, and you make sure that they're healthy enough to produce for you, because that's their function, is to produce for you. And we don't realize that's who we are. We're human capital. I was reading an article from the United Nations recently, one of their big organizations. I think it's UNITAR, it's called. And we're just kind of like a, a one rat, if you just pop it around a bit. And they call the people human capital. We are producers. Remember, the UN is the, is the organization that's fronting for a world government. And they, they're like a, a hub that all the NGOs, funded by the private foundations, the big rich private foundations, is a hub where all those groups work through. And then they work out the details for laws and changes at the United Nations and present it to your own governments that then sign it into law. It's, it's just an automatic process. It's been like that my whole life when you follow it. Automatic process. Well, getting back to the ID card, here's an article here from Wired.com. And it's from March the 23rd. It says, Lawmakers eyeing national ID card for the U.S., now, we already know they put Mark 1 into operation. It didn't take off across the country as it was supposed to. But I don't think it was really supposed to. They knew they'd get some resistance. And the whole idea is to keep coming at you. It's the same thing when they were trying to amalgamate Europe. If you voted no the first time, they just kept coming back at you. Okay, do it again, do it again, and get it right this time. And, and that's how it's done. You train. You train animals. I hope you understand that. So... It says, lawmakers eyeing national ID card, March the 23rd, 2010. Lawmakers are proposing a national ID card, what they're calling high-tech, fraud-proof social security cards, 
that would be required for all employees in the United States, all employees in the entire country. The proposal was put forward by Senator Charles Schumer and Senator Lindsey Graham, and it comes as the states are grappling to produce another national identification card at the behest of the Department of Homeland Security, so they're fronting for Homeland Security. Virtually none of the states are in compliance with this Real ID program, which was first adopted in 2005, requiring the state motor vehicle bureaus to obtain an internally scan and store personal information like social security cards and birth certificates for a national database. That's how they're trying to get it through under a national uh, vehicle license, operating license. And I'll go on with more of this when I come back from these messages. This is Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix, talking about the ID card Mark II from the, for the U.S. And it says here, the Homeland Security officials pointed to the September 11 hijackers' ability to get driver's licenses in Virginia using false information as justification for the proposed $24 billion real ID program. Uh, Schumer and Graham point to illegal immigration as the cause for their plans. So it's illegal immigration now. For as long as I can remember, the U.S. was being flooded with illegal immigrants, and every government, every change of government knew that and didn't stop it. They can send armies across the planet and police the whole planet, and people don't realize that the U.S. troops are all over the planet. There's bases every. There's, I remember reading one article from a, a military magazine. And I th- there, was, there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bases across the whole world, so they can, they can send tanks and weaponry and, and men and all the rest of it over, but they can't patrol their own border, uh, the south, apparently. And this is the, the rubbish we're supposed to accept. Most people do, unfortunately. So they, now they're using the immigrants as the excuse for the, the plan, right? Which is going to stir up more anger against the immigrants, right? They don't care because they, they get everybody fighting everybody else. That's a standard technique. Divide and conquer, then you rule them. Anyway... It says here, we would require all U.S. citizens and legal immigrants who want jobs to obtain a high-tech, fraud-proof social security card. Each card's unique biometric identifier would be stored only on the card. No government database would house everyone's information, they said. I guess it spoke like twins, these two, eh? They said this. The cards would not contain any private information, huh? medical information or tracking devices. Well, that's what they told Canada too. But then that, uh, that um, one of the articles that came out afterwards told us that it already, from Britain actually, because they bought the card from Canada, um, they, they have all the room in it for all your personal banking, all your health records and everything else. And government, as you know, never lies to you. They don't deceive you. You know that, don't you? Anyway, it says the card would be a high-tech version of the Social Security card, and citizens already have that. That's that's what they use. It's like it's like saying we're going, to, we're going to put a chip in everybody's brain. Well, after all, you know, some people use artificial legs and artificial arms. We've been using prosthesis for years. So what's wrong with the chip in your brain? I mean, that's the sort of argument they make, isn't it? Same idea. So you've been using your ID card for your, your national security card for years. So this new one with all the data to do all your records to, for all departments, including your banking, by the way, uh, it's just a, a, an extension of your Social Security card. That's all it is. Yeah. 
But we're talked to like children. You talk down to children, don't you? When they ask something that's really grave about death or whatever, you don't really just charge into it and, and give them the, the clinical definition. You, you, you talk down to them and you try to say, you come down to their level. That's how you think. I'll come down to their level and explain it in a, in a non-scary way. Jim Harper, Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, suggests the plan would undoubtedly lead to a national database. Well, of course it would. They've already got it set up. He added that there's no practical way of making a national identity document fraud-proof, and that's true as well. And since they all know that, why are they pushing it across the world? Hmm? Because of the card's proposed universality, it will likely be requested and requested by airlines and acquired by airlines, insurance agencies, healthcare providers, mortgage lenders, credit card companies, and so forth. He said that ties in with the article I read last week when they talked about doing away with paper altogether, including paper cash. It's supposed to be about eight years and no more paper money. It'll be all uh, electronic transfers, electronic business. So that was that's the U.S. one. And then, voila, of course, you find the same thing happening in Canada. And, and, you know, Canada first started the fingerprinting people on welfare quite a few years back in preparation for trying to get the whole country fingerprinted. And then, of course, some of the, the wonders, uh, wonder tech guys at uh, some of the computer companies thought, oh, well, look, it's safe for children. We'll put fingerprints that they can use. Their, everybody's getting their fingerprints and their data collected all the time. There's, there's different ways to do it. They all work together, I hope you realize. Alberta ponders biometric ID cards for the homeless. Oh, for the ho- I guess it's to let the homeless know where they are. Maybe that's the idea, right? This is from the Calgary Herald, or uh, March 28th. In a meeting with the Herald Editor Board, Housing Minister Jonathan Dennis said his department is in discussions with Service at Alberta about creating an Alberta ID card for the homeless. The province is working on the ways to provide the IQs, DCARs to homeless people that could include biometric samples of fingerprints or facial scans. So it means all of it, you know, and, 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 and. In a meeting with the Herald Editor World Board, Housing Minister Jonathan Dennis said his department is in discussions, blah, blah, blah. We're going to be discussing a biometric type of system. It's already here, as you see, Wendy Mesley showed it in, in 1998 on Canadian television. With all the capacity for all that stuff. Identification does have value on the street, and we have to make sure we have those adequate controls in place. But it would make someone feel like more of a person, help them get on their feet with a bank account, things you can't get without identification, is to help the poor guys. As more and more folk go unemployed because of NAFTA and GATS and, you know, the globalism, is to help you get a job and stuff. You might forget who you are, and here they are with a big database ready to tell you. Service Alberta Minister Heather Klimchuk said the card would allow homeless people to more easily obtain government ID by making it possible for a social worker to vouch for their identities in the absence of other documentation. Oh, what a... Oh, it's like that talk to children. I'll be back with more after this break. listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. 
This is Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix. And uh, talking about ID cards, and here's India from the Telegraph. India to issue all 1.2 billion citizens with biometric ID cards. India is easy. You can buy off the politician. This is it's a way of life there. We think it's corruption. They don't see it as corruption. That's how things work. And these ID companies are getting, you know, they're, they're passing out the cash. And uh, it's incredible sales, incredible sales. Eh? 1.2 billion people. Then you've got all your data banks and all your, your computerized equipment and specialists to, to hire and, and all that stuff to buy. I mean, that's great business for the big corporations. You know, they used to, the big corporations used to uh, put all their, their big money into uh, nuclear warfare, missiles and stuff. That was the greatest thing because it was like computers. Uh, you'd have a missile out for a month and it was obsolete. Uh, and uh, we, the taxpayer just kept funding and funding and fun- it was great business. And so many exposés came out of Britain uh, that the House of Lords especially, they get the tip-offs on what's coming up, what corporations are getting the deals. They all have shares involved in it. And it's the same thing going on today. Where they all started changing into, oh, security is the big thing. After the Cold War, they have to find another enemy. Oh, the people are the enemy. Everything's a panic. Everything's in disarray. You can't trust anybody anywhere, anytime. And security would be the big, big business. And it is, you see, massive security. A great business, fantastic business. And again, they're all in it. All the big boys are in on it. They'll get tipped off, all the big top politicians, and in they go with their investments and stuff. We're, we're giving the contract to so-and-so. That's how things really work. Uh, uh, for instance, I'm reading an article, this uh, there's an offside th- thing here, uh, about the Rothschilds and how they'd, they'd weathered this, uh, this financial crash time. They'd weathered it very well, thanks to their astute business handling, and uh, they mentioned, too, that um, they'd kind of bailed out their cousins, the Lemon Brothers, their international banking group. And, and now that the two groups of the Rothschilds, the, the French ones and the British ones, are working more closely together because they're managing all European affairs for the European Parliament, all their cash, and the upcoming carbon world stuff that's going to go through their banks in Switzerland, in the private bank. But they also said that they'd also uh, managed to escape the, this, this uh, financial storm by working with Rio Tinto, it was called. And Rio Tinto is a group they, I think, own most of the, the, the shares in it. And in another article, it mentioned that Rio Tinto was up because it's an Australian branch. They're into mining and stuff, buying uh, mines all over the planet to enrich ores and minerals and stuff for, for, since the 1800s. Uh, they were in trouble, Rio Tinto, uh, in China, and some of their executives were caught in prison there for bribing the Chinese officials to take contracts from Australia at that time, from mines in Australia. Everything works on this principle. We at the bottom are living in a fairyland. Honestly, we're, we're in a fairyland. Where it's do as, it's do as we say, not as we do. Really, yeah. Getting back to the article in India, though, uh, this says it's from a Telegraph, and it's from the 15th of July, 2009. I mentioned it before, but I'll say it again. It ties in with this, this, the other articles here. Uh, crowds of people in Delhi, India, uh, to, usher, to issue all 1.2 billion citizens with the biometric ID cards. Their operation will be run by the Unique Identification Authority, a new government department created specifically for the task of assigning every living Indian an exclusive number and gathering and electronically storing their personal details. Do you understand? You see, India never really worked on taxation. 
as it did in the rest of the world. And now they're going global and the big corporations are putting factories and businesses in there like China. Uh, then they've got to make sure the slaves are going to pay up their share because that's what slaves are for, you know. And that's nothing new to India or Britain for that matter. When you go into the histories of Britain, when they went into India, what they were so impressed about was the, the way all the, uh, the local, um, uh, high men, the Brahmins, and each area had their taxation set up, a system of payback, really. You paid to, to live, you paid to exist, you paid for eating, you paid for everything. You had to like, kick back of everything to the high boys. So they, were, they had a form of taxation, and the British governors that were sent into different areas cashed in on it. They, they took most of their pay uh, out of a cut of that as well, as well as getting paid by the British taxpayer for being in the military. So uh, this stuff is nothing new. Again, a different training for the ones above, a different training of a worldview for those down below. Uh, and uh, India is going to be a great boon for these characters with all the cash to come in the, in the future once they start taxing all those people uh, to the government. Uh, you can't, it's a win-win situation for those in government now. You can start cutting out all the middlemen. You see, lots of them, lots of middlemen. And when we go into the Security and Prosperity Partnership, I'm going to put these links up on my site, remember, cuttingthroughthematrix.com at the end of the show. And you can check them out for yourself. But it's a good article from Voltaire, uh, which uh, is to do with NAFTA and GATT and so on. And it's to do with the Security and Prosperity Partnership. And it talks about the second 2009 censor project selection unmasked the agenda behind the Secretive Security and Prosperity Partnership of North America Agreement, which has been in the works since 2005. That's when uh, they signed the first, uh, they signed the first, uh, they're not calling it an agreement. It's sort of like a, I don't know what it's called, uh, a club's agreement, a, a club's, oh, I don't know, who knows. But uh, they're denying it's a treaty and all that, even though we're, we're working towards it, we're already blending together. In other words, as legal, um, as factual reality as opposed to any legal. Legal will come afterwards. They'll, they'll figure some way to make it legal. But they'll do it all first and make it so. It says, its aim is to create a seamless North American Union under U.S. control to maximize the profits of U.S. corporate giants. Ha ha, who never get taxed. I just read, in fact, they're going to postpone all taxation for all corporations in the U.S. and Canada for about 10 years. That's added to the last 20, 30 years they haven't paid taxes. So it's nothing to do with it. That's the excuse we're getting anyway. As soon as they'll tax the big boys, that's how we sit back. Oh, good, they're going to suck it to them. And to ensure the U.S. gets free and unlimited access to Canadian and Mexican resources, mainly oil and water, is framed by a hardcore security strategy which envisions the military invasion of member countries in the event of economic chaos. And that, by the way... That uh, partnership, Security and Prosperity Partnership, was presented on Canadian television in 2005 when uh, they were at Waco, Texas, signing the agreement, the two prime ministers, Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. president. And uh, it was the CFR came on the same night and said they were the ones who drafted it up and presented it to the guys to sign. Well, did you vote in the Council on Foreign Relations? No. You ever hear that at election time? But they're their members all through government, uh, that the bosses at the top of government are all, are all their members. Carl Quigley said that too. 
Since leaders of Canada, the U.S. and Mexico have been meeting to securely expand the North American Free Trade Agreement with deep integration. That's the same as closer ties as used for the European Union of a more militarized trinational homeland security force taking shape under the radar of the respective governments and without public knowledge or consideration. The Security and Prosperity Partnership, headquartered in Washington, aims to integrate the three nations into a single political, economic and security block. That's already been happening since 2005. It was first launched at the meeting of Presidents George Bush and Vicente Fox and Prime Minister Paul Martin in Waco, Texas, March 31st, 2005. I I taped it all on videotape and I played the audio over the air uh, in 2005 to the U.S. citizens because they'd never heard about it on any other TV stations. So I played the Canadian uh, broadcast of, of what they talked about it, what they said about it from the Canadian uh, news. Uh, that's how you have to get the real truth through. And the average American has no clue. They think they're the most informed people on the planet because there's so many different radio and TV stations. They don't realize that all the news is funneled through two corporations. It says that the official U.S. web page describes the SPP as a White House-led initiative amongst the U.S. and Canada and Mexico to increase security and to enhance prosperity. Well, it is enhancing prosperity, but it's for those who are in the security business and sell all the gadgetry and hire armies and stuff like that, yeah. The SPP is not a law or a treaty or even a signed agreement. Actually, it is signed because they said in the Canadian one that it, it, it interviews that it was signed. They all signed it. All these would require public debate and participation of Congress. No, no, they don't. It was born in the War of Terror uh, era and reflects an inordinate emphasis on U.S. security as interpreted by the Department of Homeland Security. Its accords mandate border actions, military and police training modernization of equipment and adoption of new technologies, all under the logic of the U.S. counterterrorism campaign. Head of the Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff at the time, Loma Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and Secretary of Finance, Carlos Guterres, are the three officials charged with attending SPP ministerial conferences. Well, they had one to sign every year up to 2010 of this, this non-agreement, which they signed, <laughs> and then it was to be total integration. And we're going through that phase right now. I'm just waiting for them to announce it in Canadian television when they sign the last one. But I'll put these links up, as I say. You can go through them for yourself and see what you think. Now, most of the top members of journalism in television, radio, and the news industry uh, are members of the Council on Foreign Relations. You don't apply to join the Council on Foreign Relations. They will invite you after scrutinizing you to see if you're a person who will go along with the agenda and you like gifts and stuff like that. And this article here is from March 25th, 2010. And so I'm sure these guys wrote it, you see. How can uh, we, North Americans, move forward together? It ties in with that uh, Security and Prosperity prosperity Partnership, or NAFTA. It's all part of the same system. Uh, By Jeremy Kinsman, interesting name, special to the CBC News. In a changing world that's witnessing the end of America's global dominance, what is North America's future? What, in fact, does North America mean, besides its obvious geographic location? 
Is it really a common home for the citizens of our three countries, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico? Do you understand where it's going, how it's presented? This is how they did the stuff with massive immigration into Britain. Well, what's a citizen anyway? What's British anyway? But the same thing in Canada for 20 years here. That's how they get you. Well, yeah, we came here. Remember, we were Vikings at one time. Who knows? I mean, all this stuff, you see. How can that be, you might ask, when the largest, uh, uh, the largest has built up, or bulked up its border defenses to such an extent and seems to be like playing footsie with economic protectionism? North America is clearly at a strategic crossroad, and the question we ought to be asking is, how do we move forward together? Well, isn't it nice? It's, you picture that we're all moving, like some sort of war movie at the end where the, the heroes are all marching into the sunset, you know, and together, you know. You understand the techniques that are used in everything you read? Canada's Stephen Harper, Mexico's Philippe Calderon, and U.S. President Barack Obama at an impromptu North American summit, impromptu, to deal with swine flu and cross-border trade in August 2009. And they give you the links for where that was. And the discussion about North American summit to deal with cross-border trade and so on. A recent conference in North America's America's Future, Berkeley experts from the University of California and the University of British Columbia presented a host of materials showing there are fewer differences between Canadians and Americans than are commonly believed. As usual, the data shows Canadians are more apt to favour government services because they are seen to have worked. Well, I don't know who said that. Americans, on the other hand, have a strong commitment to religion, especially about uh, evangelical, as part of their collective identity. But there are no big uh, cleavages that could block closer integration on vital issues such as the environment, energy, or a common security. So what stands in the way of our moving forward? The brooders. The brooders. People who brood, it says here. The Berkeley Conference was not lacking for eminent Canadian and American doers. The participants, including former ministers Joe Clark, Canada, and McClelland, uh, Pierre Mark Johnson and David Emerson, as well as a binational group of savvy scholars and former ambassadors such as Canadian Alan Gottlieb and the American Thomas Pickering. You understand, uh, uh, Maggie Thatcher talked about parallel government. They get this, gets a real work done. These guys are all ex-top politicians. And they all know each other, as Maggie Thatcher said, and Carol Quigley said the same thing about the CFR. Uh, and they get things done. They're technocrats, you call them now. They work for the ones who really run the world. They don't get into political bickering. They're given agendas. They will tell you that. They're non-political. Every book put out by the Council on Foreign Relations, to the average person, you think is discussing nothing but politics, but it's not. It's discussing agendas, only agendas. There's no bickering with them. And that's how they run the parallel government. They get things done. They're not answerable to the public, and they're incredibly well-financed by the big foundations. For his part, Gottlieb, who championed Brian Mulroney's free trade deal during his period in Washington in the 1980s, despaired at the combined efforts of 9-11 and the U.S. financial meltdown, has turned America inward and defensive. I guess it was supposed to make us all see, be born happy family. Is that why they had 9-11? The recent so-called thickening of the Canada-U.S. border, he said, has smothered the grains of the 1988 Free Trade Agreement and its 1994 North American successor, NAFTA. What's more, he went on, Canada's lost strategic significance for Washington despite the importance of her energy exports. All in all, we don't see where we are going. Oh, 
really. But I'll put this link up too, and you can read the the pablum on uh, as you go through this kind of stuff here, and then I'll give you all the solutions to it, of course, uh, at the end, and the different links they generally put on them as well. You would not believe how many people have emailed me about the, the, the U.S. losing all their rights from U.S. citizens, especially to do with the, the federal government literally overrunning all state laws. And every, the Constitution in the U.S. hasn't supposedly been changed all that much. It has been quite a bit, actually, with amendments over the years. But its basic system was set up that the different states could, if they wanted to, secede from the whole if promises and agreements were broken. And the federal government was not supposed to interfere in certain in certain areas to do with the states. But everyone's noticed that, that since 9-11 happened, and especially now with all uh, the left-wing devotees being shoved into Obama's regime by the same guys who own both sides, dedicated uh, internationalists and socialists, that really they're trying to create a Britain, you might say, in the U.S. The U.S. has to adopt the whole British system where everyone's dependent on the government because you can't get anything done without it and you've got layers of bureaucracies and so on. And they're adopting uh, the so-called healthcare system, which is a disaster now in, in the U.K. And the first thing the IMF does when they come into countries is slash the healthcare budget. I'm going to go on about that and show the U.S. what you're heading for. Plus, the insurance companies are backing this plan. They want it in. Back with more after this break. This is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. And rather than read the whole article, I'm just mention this is from Mail Online. It says here, uh, 25 hospital trusts, this is the UK, it's to show the, UK, the US what you're in for, should be utterly investigated over fears thousands of patients may have died unnecessarily, March the 25th, 2010. And it ties in with another article. I'll put all these links up, remember, on my site, cuttingthroughmatrix.com in the show. It ties in with an article where the National Health Service for the whole of Britain is paying the ambulance services not to bring patients to the hospitals. Kidding? I'm not kidding you. They're paying them that. If they divert them off you know, in a roundabout phone call from one place to the next, and stay at home and take an aspirin, you know. You what? You've cut your leg? Oh, oh dear. Your leg's fallen off. Just stay home and, and get somebody to run to the pharmacy and get some band, bandages and wrap it well and see your doctor in the morning. Not kidding, folks. This is this is the farce that you go into with the National Health Service. That's just if you can even get an appointment. That's why folk go in an ambulance. You can't get appointments with anybody. That's the real. And as I say, there's an article here. I've got articles on the big, the biggest insurance companies in the U.S. are the ones who are all for this national health system in the U.S. It's beautiful, beautiful technique, eh? They're all behind it because they're going to make an awful lot of money for less and less and less that they give out to the public. Now, there's callers there. I'll try and get a couple of quick callers in. 
There's there's Chad from Washington. Are you there, Chad? Hello. Is Chad there? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yeah. Hi. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for all your work. I've been listening to you for a while now, and uh, I've been trying to pick up the torch <laughs> as best I can. That's right. It burns the fingers, right? <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> You're right. Um, yeah, I, I was, I've been reading a little bit about the uh, national ID card or the ID card they want to push here. And, of course, already here in Washington State, they really pushed the enhanced ID card to cross mm-hmm. over the border with Canada. Yeah. But um, I've been reading... Uh, this is a little off topic, but not quite. I've been reading uh, America's Cultural Cold War, mm-hmm. and it's been very revealing. But just want to assure people that a lot of most of your ideas don't come from you, because there's a lot of very uh, uh, agitated uh, people that want to promote these ideas all over the place. So that's how they come at you, is with all these foundations. That's right. And it that's makes right. a lot of sense. So... Um, but I don't really have a question. I just wanted to call in. I haven't. I've never called in before. So. Yeah. Well, thanks for calling. And call again. All right. Good I know. And there's also uh, Ron from Texas. There, Ron. Hey, Alan. Can you hear me? Yes. Hey, first I want to thank you for the great work you do. I'm a huge fan and have been for quite a while. Um, I want to make a comment on you were talking about the um, the dumb down public or the sheeple. I I quit watching television a number of years ago, and I noticed just maybe a few days later that I actually started living in a totally different reality than than most of my friends and family. Yes. And what I find is that they they'll do and believe anything their TVs or their their newspapers tell them. There's just it's just really unbelievable the mind control that the TVs have on the American public. Uh, Truly, when they're all watching TV at the same time, even different homes doesn't matter. You're right; they're they're in a different world, and you're in there with them. And and it really is like night and day when you get away from it and start thinking. My discussions involve the weather, or you know, some kind of family member, or something like that. I can't even discuss politics with any, almost any of my friends now because they're Mm -hmm. they believe what the newspapers or the TV tells them, and that's it. It's just unbelievable. I'll I'll be talking about that tomorrow, in fact, and what Mister Holdren said about the dumbed down, stupid public. No kidding, at a world meeting, so I'll read about that tomorrow. Thanks for calling from Hamish, myself, and Ontario, Canada. It's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you.